Americans go to court seeking the resolution of a dispute. The government is prosecuting you and you're found either guilty or not guilty. Your neighbor has wronged you and they're held to account or not. You think your rights have been violated and you ask a court to agree and make the violation stop. But what happens when, instead of offering clarity or resolving the problem, the court just makes it worse? What happens when a court, maybe even the United States Supreme Court, faces a tough legal question and instead of answering it, makes us all even more confused than we were to begin with? That's what happened to a man named Nico Jacobellis, a movie theater manager in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. In 1964, Jacob Ellis went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, seeking answers to these questions. Was the French movie he showed at his theater obscene and outside the protections of the First Amendment? And how could he tell next time whether a movie is obscene or not? He wanted a clear answer, a rule. But what he got instead was this infamous line. Under the First and Fourteenth Amendments, Criminal laws in this area are constitutionally limited to hardcore pornography. I shall not today attempt further to define the kinds of material I understand to be embraced within that shorthand description, and perhaps I could never succeed in intelligibly doing so. But I know it when I see it, and the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Thanks, Justice Potter Stewart. That's really helpful. I'm Ken White, and this is Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from Popat.com, brought to you on the Legal Talk Network. This is episode 12. I know it when I see it. In November 1959, Nico Jacobellis managed the Heights Art Theater. It wasn't the kind of theater you'd go to if you wanted to see the blockbuster movie of the day, which that year would have been Ben-Hur. It was where you went if you wanted to see something more likely to be called a film than a movie. Maybe subtitled. Certainly something serious. The owner of the Heights Art Theater wanted to show the French film Les Amants, or The Lovers, by famed director Louis Malle. Les Amants is about a woman in a loveless marriage who finds meaning and purpose in an affair with a younger man. There's nothing in the movie you wouldn't see on primetime TV today. But at the time, it was quite controversial in America and theaters in different states showed different versions with various scenes edited out. 
I talked to University of Pennsylvania's Professor Philippe Met, an expert on Louis Mal, about the significance of Les Amants. He explained that it might not have been so much the explicitness of the movie that made it controversial, but Louis Mal's approach that presented adultery neutrally or even positively. This material in and of itself was pretty banal and pretty common, especially in terms of French history, French culture, French arts, basically the eternal triangle, the married um, woman having an affair, and so on and so forth. So all of that is, of course, pretty common, certainly in France at the time, including on film. What I think is very different and what perhaps played a major part in the uh, controversy that this film stirred at the time is not only the treatment of this subject matter uh, in terms of the visual representation, let's say, of sex or sexuality, or at least eroticism on celluloid, but also the the moral stance, if you will, uh, vis-a-vis that particular storyline and subject matter. This is something that is typical of Limao's career throughout. The non-judgmental approach to the subject matter, regardless of what the subject matter might be. And of course, there is also a long line <laughs> running and thread running throughout Weimar's career and, and filmography in terms of approaching, treating controversial subject matter. The realism and focus of the sex scene also set Les Amants apart from the movies of the time. Very often, you know, the sex scene at the time, very quickly the camera would pan away to the window. I mean, it was almost like a sort of a, like, um, like a trope or a stereotype, if you will, uh, for that type of scene. And then we would cut to the morning after, basically, right? Of course, this is the 1950s, so, you know, compared to, to the standards, this is very difficult to understand why this created such a, such a scandal, because it, it comes across as fairly tame compared to what we see on celluloid nowadays. But again, it's the idea that the camera, instead of panning away to the window right away, it's going to stay on Jean Moreau's face. So, what about this movie got Nico Jacob Ellis in trouble? Well, the most controversial scene of Les Amants is about 30 seconds long. It shows the protagonist, her face, her shoulders, and then her arm, in bed as she moves her arm down the bed slowly, in apparent ecstasy. There's no nudity, and you can't see her partner, but the implication is very clear that she's engaged in passionate sex and perhaps that she's receiving oral sex. Nico Jacobellis didn't pick Les Amants himself. History doesn't record whether he was a fan of foreign language films, but the record shows that his job was to run the theater. It's clear that he didn't think he was doing anything wrong. When the local sheriff heard about the movie and asked about it, Jacob Ellis invited him to come watch. For his trouble, he was charged with two counts of possessing and exhibiting an obscene, lewd, or lascivious movie in violation of Ohio law. He waived a jury trial and asked for a bench trial before three judges, which the obscenity statute allowed. The judges convicted him. He was fined $2,500, about $22,000 in today's money, 
And under Ohio law at the time, he normally would have had to stay in the workhouse of the city of Cleveland until the fine was paid. But the judge, pending appeal, stayed that sentence. He appealed to the Ohio Court of Appeals and then to the Supreme Court of Ohio, arguing that the First Amendment protected Les Amants. Here's what the three judges who convicted Jacob Ellis wrote. It is the unanimous finding of the court that the motion picture film in issue is obscene, lewd, and lascivious within the definition, description, and test set forth in Roth v. United States. Les Amants, or The Lovers, has relation to sexual impurity and has a tendency to excite lustful thoughts. Again, it has a substantial tendency to deprave or corrupt its viewing audience by inciting lascivious thoughts and arousing lustful desires. Finally, the dominant theme of this film, when taken as a whole, to the average person, applying contemporary community standards, appeals to prurient interest. Now, the judges didn't make up that language. They took it from a 1957 case called Roth v. United States, which was one of the Supreme Court's first attempts to articulate a definition, a standard, for obscenity. But the definition still left a lot of questions, like whose contemporary community standards are we considering in determining whether something's obscene? Is it the nation as a whole? Cleveland, Ohio? People who go to subtitled French movies? Does it matter whether the work has artistic value? Moreover, the definition raised this question. How can someone possibly know in advance whether or not a particular work will be treated as obscene? Those were the questions the Supreme Court attempted to address. But before it could get there, the court had to confront the film, the thing that was allegedly obscene. The justices, as would become their habit in this line of cases, all watched it. Apparently, the justices would often watch the movies together, which is both creepy and hilarious. Years later, after a screening of the movie Sexual Freedom in Denmark, Justice Thurgood Marshall turned to Justice Harry Blackman and said, Well, Harry, I didn't learn anything. How about you? In arguing the Jacob Ellis case before the Supreme Court, the lawyers for the parties took very different approaches to describing the pivotal scene. Jacob Ellis's counsel, perhaps attempting to de-emphasize the erotic nature of the scene, was pretty dry. Here's Ephraim London struggling miserably to describe the scene to the Supreme Court. Uh, what is on screen is a woman, uh, Your Honor, and you see her face and bare shoulders. She is lying in bed, uh, and prior to that time, there has been uh, a scene of lovemaking between the woman and the man. You don't see any act of love, but it's quite obvious that, uh, that they are making love to each other, or at least that they are in the, in the bed for that purpose. That is not the voice of a man who's happy to find himself describing a sex act to the United States Supreme Court. By contrast, John T. Corrigan, who represented the state of Ohio, was a lot more explicit, perhaps because he wanted to shock the justices into seeing this as obscene. The scene then moves to the bedroom, wherein the upper portion of her body is exposed, as is his, and the scene depicts him laying on top of this young lady, engaged in arduous embrace, and after a period of this lovemaking, 
He then disappears, and she is seen on the screen, and as the expert witnesses testified, experiencing an orgasm, and leaving no other inference but that the young man is then engaged in cunnilingus. After this is completed, the young couple continue to spend the balance of the night sleeping together in the bed. I've decided there's nothing less sexy than a lawyer describing a love scene in a mid-Atlantic accent. The state of Ohio's position here was very aggressive. One of the issues was whether a work was obscene if it still had some social or artistic value. Ohio didn't want the court to get hung up on that question, so Ohio's lawyer took the very bold stance that the movie would fall apart and be meaningless without the sex scene. It would be perfectly all right if you were to take out that scene, you would have nothing that would be appealing to anyone. For it would be a meaningless picture, uh, it would have no purpose, and uh, it would have no commercial purpose thereafter. There would be nothing to appeal to the viewing public. It would, it would be a movie, if you please, that would lead you to a certain point and then just leave you hanging high and dry. This was probably a poor tactical choice, especially given that the movie was so celebrated and because it was shown successfully in several locations without the pivotal scene. The Supreme Court ordered re-argument of the case. It's clear they had real trouble resolving the issues. And on June 22, 1964, they released a ruling that proved it. The Supreme Court reversed Nico Jacobellis's conviction, 7-2, to but they could not agree on how to get there. The case is a mishmash of four opinions and two dissents, without a majority agreeing on the theory under which Les Amant was protected by the First Amendment. The justices all agreed the issue was governed by their prior case, Roth versus United States. Under Roth, the question was, and I'm quoting here, whether, to the average person, applying contemporary community standards, the dominant theme of the material, taken as a whole, appeals to prurient interests. But they couldn't agree what that meant, and what community should be consulted, or how a court should evaluate the artistic or literary merit of a work as part of that analysis. The first opinion was by Justice Brennan. He took the stance that if a work of art has any merit, it can't be obscene. We would reiterate, however, our recognition in Roth that obscenity is excluded from the constitutional protection only because it is utterly without redeeming social importance, and that the portrayal of sex, for example, in art, literature, and scientific works, is not itself sufficient reason to deny material the constitutional protection of freedom of speech and press. It follows that material dealing with sex in a manner that advocates ideas or that has literary or scientific or artistic value or any other form of social importance may not be branded as obscenity and denied the constitutional protection. Justice Brennan also asserted that the community values to be applied can't be local because that would put everyone at the whim of local prejudices. It is true that local communities throughout the land are, in fact, diverse, and that, in cases such as this one, the court is confronted with the task of reconciling the rights of such communities with the rights of individuals. Communities vary, however, in many respects other than their toleration of alleged obscenity. 
and such variances have never been considered to require or justify a varying standard for application of the federal Constitution. Justice Goldberg agreed with Justice Brennan, but also wanted you to know that he watched the movie and he didn't see what the big deal was. I viewed the film, and I wish merely to add to my brother Brennan's description that the love scene deemed objectionable is so fragmentary and fleeting that only a censor's alert would make an audience conscious that something questionable is being portrayed. By contrast, Justices Black and Douglas took a First Amendment absolutist position that the government can't punish obscenity at all. Finally, and perhaps most memorably, Justice Potter Stewart offered his deathless line, maybe the best-known quote about obscenity law. But I know it when I see it. And the motion picture involved in this case is not that. Is not that. Is not that. Potter Stewart's quote may be so memorable because it says out loud something many people suspect about the law. That for all the complex rationales and multi-part tests and appeals to authority, judges are just making it up as they go along. And that the intellectual rigor is just a facade. Jacob Ellis left Americans with no coherent definition of what sort of obscenity is outside First Amendment protections. That's ironic, because a key element of Jacob Ellis's argument was that he should not be held liable for violating a standard that no one can define. It wasn't until 1973, in the case Miller v. California, that a majority of the Supreme Court finally articulated a somewhat workable standard, the Miller test, which more or less is the current standard for identifying obscenity outside the protection of the First Amendment. The Miller test has three parts. First, whether the average person applying contemporary community standards would find that the work taken as a whole appeals to the prurient interest. Second, whether the work depicts or describes in a patently offensive way sexual or excretory function. And third, whether the work taken as a whole lacks serious literary, artistic, political, or scientific value. Lazamont would pass the Miller test because of its widely recognized literary and artistic value. I talked to Professor Jeffrey Stone, professor of law at the University of Chicago and the author of Sex and the Constitution, Sex, Religion, and Law from America's Origins to the 21st Century. I wanted to know, why was it so hard for the Jacob Ellis Court to agree on a definition of obscenity? Well, there was historically no such concept of obscenity. It did not exist at the time the First Amendment was adopted, for example. And it came into being in the early years of the 19th century initially um, during the Second Great Awakening. And then after the Civil War, it was pushed uh, much more dramatically by people like Anthony Comstock, who led every state in the nation and the federal government eventually to adopt a law that essentially provided that any work that tended to corrupt the minds of the most susceptible members of society was obscene. And that was taken to mean essentially that any reference to sex in any way, shape or form was prohibited. And there were marginal issues at the extreme, but it covered basically everything. As time went on and we moved into the 20th century, 
courts began interpreting that statutory provision in a somewhat narrower way and trying to confine the meaning of obscenity. And the problem, as the Supreme Court discovered it in 1957 in the Roth case, when it began applying the First Amendment to the issue, um, is that once you move beyond the absolute, anything related to sex is obscene, is that defining with any clarity what degree of reference to sexuality or depiction of sexuality is obscene is going to be inevitably somewhat vague. Now, I've always viewed the Miller test as protecting more speech by making the definition of obscenity narrower because of its more detailed requirements of patently offensive depictions of sex. Professor Stone explained that I'm just wrong. Miller protects less speech because it focuses the contemporary community standards on the local community rather than the national community, thus allowing more conservative jurisdictions to punish more speech. Prior to Miller, the court talked about a national standard, and that meant that communities that were particularly conservative could not prohibit speech that they regarded as inappropriate unless a national standard was satisfied. In Miller, the court went beyond that and said that local community standards were determinative, and that meant that those communities that were particularly conservative could ban speech that would not be banned, for example, in New York or in Los Angeles. And that gave communities much broader authority to ban sexually explicit speech. So if that's true, why don't we still have obscenity prosecutions brought in conservative jurisdictions? Well, Professor Stone explains that even if the Supreme Court wouldn't adopt a set of national community standards, technology could effectively create one. By the time of the George W. Bush administration, the law of obscenity, at least with respect to consenting adults, had largely disappeared, even though legal doctrine allowed prosecutions. Because what had happened is with the advent of cable and social media, uh, individuals became increasingly exposed to all sorts of sexual material, and the concept of community standards changed dramatically. So by the time you get to the 21st century, government efforts to restrict something called obscenity with respect to consenting adults largely disappeared. And in today's world, for example, you see no federal prosecutions of obscenity with respect to consenting adults. The George W. Bush administration was still clinging in a few cases where it was extreme obscenity in communities that were deeply offended by it. But at that point, it was really a lost possibility. Finally, just as the law changes over time, so too do Supreme Court justices. Obscenity law is a good example. Remember that in Jacob Ellis, Justice Brennan struggled to come up with a workable standard to define obscenity. But by Miller, he had abandoned that effort and concluded that the First Amendment did not permit punishment of obscenity consumed by consenting adults. Brennan, I think, had come around to the view that it was, as a practical matter, impossible to define obscenity in a way that could consistently and objectively be applied. And as a consequence, it was arbitrary and ambiguity is inconsistent with the First Amendment. One of the things the Supreme Court had long recognized is that if laws governing speech are not clear, then that will have a serious chilling effect on the willingness of individuals to engage in constitutionally protected speech. And the clarity of rules governing speech is an essential component 
of First Amendment principles. And what Brennan finally came to is the view that the concept of obscenity is so inherently ambiguous that it simply cannot be defined in a way that is clear enough to give notice to booksellers or movie exhibitors or individuals so that they can actually know whether or not any particular work is or is not obscene. And at least, therefore, with consenting adults, the state should not be intervening. In this series of podcasts, I'll be telling more stories behind important First Amendment decisions. If there's a case you want to hear about or a First Amendment question you'd like answered on the podcast, drop me a line at ken at popat.com. Thanks for listening. You can find documents and cases mentioned on this podcast at popat.com or legaltalknetwork.com. If you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Lastly, I'd like to thank our participants, producers, and audio engineers for their participation. My guests, Professor Philippe Met and Professor Jeffrey Stone, voice actors, Professor Richard Freer of Emory University School of Law as Justice Potter Stewart, Jose Trujillo as the Ohio State Court of Appeals, Ralph Baxter as Justice William J. Brennan, Dennis Kennedy as Justice Arthur Goldberg, producer Kate Nutting, network manager Evan DeSherry, executive producer Lawrence Coletti, and last but not least, music, sound design, editing, and mixing by Adam Lockwood. Excerpts from the oral argument in Jacob Ellis v. Ohio, provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. See you next time. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.